The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone, this is Mary Woods. I'm hoping you're all having a wonderful summer and today we have as our guest Shannon Shy, who has written a new book called It'll Be Okay, How I Kept a Obsessive Compulsive Disorder from Ruining My Life. And let me introduce our guest. Shannon Shy is a senior civilian attorney with the Department of the Navy and a retired U.S. Marine Corps Reserve Lieutenant Colonel. In 1997, while on active duty with the Marines, he was diagnosed with a severe case of obsessive compulsive disorder, or um, as we like to call it, OCD. His OCD had become so severe, he, had pra- he became practically non-functioning. And he's going to be talking to us a little bit about his um, experiences with OCD. But more importantly, he's also going to be talking to us about his recovery from OCD. And um, he has developed a behavioral strategy that has worked for him and for some others called Ground Rules and Checkpoints, which I think comes from his military background. And um, I'd like to welcome Shannon to our show and uh Shannon, could you just begin by telling us um, why you decided to write the book? Yes. Uh, thank you, Mary, for having me on the show. Uh, I really appreciate this. Uh, I guess ultimately it boils down to uh, OCD had affected me so severely that it almost brought me to a stop in my life. And I'd been very outgoing um, and high achieving before the OCD entered my life. And I had a wife at the time and two young sons, and I and I knew that I wasn't the same person that I had been previously, uh, or at least OCD was preventing me from being there. Uh, once I finally decided to to seek treatment, and then after I had developed my strategy, uh, I had turned my life back around 180 degrees, and I discovered that the the disorder OCD was so debilitating that. If I could in any way help others who are suffering from it or people who are actually trying to help somebody suffering from it, if I could show them that there is a way out and you can get back to living the life that you want to, uh, that I would do what I could to do that. About two years ago, I had helped a woman who had OCD, and she told me that I had changed her life. And we had talked a little bit about uh, the fact that I was thinking about writing a book, and she said, I really did need to tell my story. So I put my mind to it, and I wrote the book and put it out there. And I've received some, some really kind comments about the book, and people have told me that it's been helpful to them. You know, I think um, it's – I read it um, last weekend, and it's, a, it's, it's very practical. I think it's very well written. And um, in some ways, you kind of really just cut to the chase. There's not a lot of psychobabble in it, and I think it's easy to understand. And your um, 
your behavioral concepts are easy to understand as well. Thank you. Um, I think, uh, so congratulations. You had mentioned when you first talked about how you didn't think you could have a mental illness, and I think a lot of people kind of respond to that, that we see mental illnesses more as a weakness of character as opposed to a brain disease. Yes. When I, back in 1992 is when I really started noticing symptoms, which at the time I didn't know was OCD. I just knew something was going on. And uh, I think I was around 29 years old then. I was on active duty with the Marine Corps. By the time I was 34, uh, in 1997, I was a major on active duty with the Marine Corps. It had, again, it had affected me in so many different ways, it practically shut me down. And I was afraid to seek help at the time because I didn't know what the Marine Corps would do with me. And, and, And I had those perceptions about, something being wrong with with me uh, and that people would see you know this I've got some mental illness if I have a disorder uh, people would see me as weak uh, and then I played that out to the Marine Corps would kick me out I wouldn't be able to uh, provide for my family I wouldn't be able to seek civilian employment uh, I would lose my family lose my career and uh, I didn't see that as a, a very good option uh, ultimately I I boiled it down to two other options which were which I didn't think were options as well. One was trying to live like this forever, and then the other one, uh, I'm very open and honest in the book about this subject, but uh, suicide was a very prevalent thought, and I knew that was not an option. Uh, So uh, after one particular memorable episode of OCD and after getting some nudging from my wife and a colleague, I finally decided that I did need to seek help, and that was the smartest decision that I ever made. I don't think we really understand how debilitating um, obsessive-compulsive disorder can be and how it can just ruin every aspect of a person's life. Um, Could you share with our audience a little bit about what um, obsessive-compulsive disorder is and how it affected your life? Yes. uh, OCD affects, uh, I think there are different ways that it manifests itself. For me... Uh, and again, I want to make this uh, qualifier for your audience that I'm not a doctor. I'm just a lawyer, uh, and I'm telling just my personal story. So I can I can tell you in very clear terms how it affected me, and and uh, both by way of examples and then physically and and mentally how it how it affected me. Uh, but I can't tell you certainly everything about OCD and the way it affects everybody else. I'll leave that to the psychiatric profession. For me. Um, the the obsessive part of OCD was a lot of irrational, intrusive, persistent thoughts that would come into my head. For example, I'd be driving down the road, and I would see an object on the side of the road uh, like a log, and my mind would immediately recognize the log for what it is, a log. Uh, and then as I drove on, OCD would kick in, and I would become with obsessed with the thought that, it may not have been a log. It may have been a person back there bleeding to death. And that would cause me, like it would any other person, um, if, it, if it were actually true, great anxiety. And I was saying, oh, my gosh, I can't, you know, I can't let a dying person back there. I need to make sure, I, you know, that person gets help. And, and then that would go on to, well, if, if that was a person and it, and it person dies, you know, it's going to be your responsibility because you saw the person. You did nothing about it. Uh, that would lead, as I said, to anxiety, and then, and the further I would think about it, uh, I would start getting physical 
reactions, like my heart rate would increase, I would start to sweat, my stomach would become nauseous, um, I could feel my body temperature rising, uh, and that would lead to a compulsion. The compulsion would be, uh, and this is the compulsion part of OCD, uh, would lead to some action. And in that particular example, the action would be, well, you need to go back and check and make sure that it wasn't the person lying there bleeding. So I would turn my car around, I would go back and see the log, and I would say, okay, it was just the log, and, you know, all of the physical symptoms would subside, turn my car back around to go in the direction I was originally headed, and then the, the obsession would come back and say, well, you didn't really look at it that carefully. It really was a person back there bleeding to death. And everything would play out again, and I'd go back and check again. And sometimes I would do that 20 to 30 times, just turn my car around and go back and check. And I would be in this endless loop until I finally got to where I was going. Um, so it, in my book, I talk, I, I divide the, the, the many different ways it affected me into 16 different categories, uh, and I devote an entire chapter to it. I think one of the things that, um, one of the points you made in your book, too, was about the pitfalls um, when you first began treatment. And I think um, if you could talk a little bit about the power of suggestion. Yes. The day after I was diagnosed um, by the psychiatrist with having OCD, I went to a bookstore and just started reading about OCD. And there's a couple of things that happened. Um, with regard to the power of suggestion with OCD, the power of suggestion is very strong. And generally how that plays itself out is you you see something and you say, oh, gosh, I can't think that particular thought. I can't think about that. In my case, it was uh, I saw a little passage that some OCD people uh, have violent thoughts about children. And and I have two kids, and I've I've never had a violent thought about a child in my life. And I said, oh, no, I can't have that. I can't think violent thoughts about children. Well, with the power of suggestion being the way it is in OCD, what I, I immediately had the thought, and then I, I did maybe the worst thing that I could have done is I tried to resist having the thought. And in, in my OCD world, the more I tried to resist thinking about a particular matter or thinking a thought, I was almost certain, no, not almost, I was certain to have the thought. And it would be, it would be persistent, it would be strong, and it would be intrusive. And on that particular day, when I when I had that when I read that passage about violent thoughts against children, and I tried not to have the thought, all I could do was think about having violent thoughts against my children. And as I was driving home from the bookstore, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm either going to have to call the police on myself for something that I had not done, or, uh, you know, I, I thought I'm just going to have to commit suicide because I'm not going to I'm not going to put myself in this position or my children in this position of their father having these thoughts, and. If, if you want, I can play the rest of that scene out. When I uh, uh, when I finally got home, uh, I was headed towards the garage, and my my five year old son, who's now almost seventeen, uh, he was back in the toy room with his one year old brother playing, and he called. He heard me come in, and he called me back, and I saw the one year old first, and I was just simply trying to have beautiful thoughts about him, and all I could do was envision myself walking up and kicking him in the head, and then I turned and looked at the five year old, and the same thought occurred, and. At that point, I was just, you know, completely outside myself. I said, I called to my wife and said, I got to leave. I got to leave the house. I can't stay here. And she asked me what happened, and I told her. 
and then she, you know, uh, this turned out to be uh, something I use through my treatment. But she gave me a big hug and said, look, we know that you would never have, you, Shannon Shy, would never have that thought. That has to be OCD doing that. Uh, you're not going anywhere. We're going to stay here and take care of you. So I stayed, and <clears throat> that particular concept of identifying the thought as an OCD thought was something that became central to my, my uh, behavioral therapy for OCD. And I think that's important for everyone to understand that you're not your illness or you're not your symptom. That's right. just a, something that happens to you, but that's not who you are as a fiber of your being. Correct. And I think that sometimes for folks who have mental illness and other brain diseases is that we label them as, oh, he's an obsessive compulsive or he's schizophrenic or he's a manic depressive, when in fact those are just symptoms that are not don't necessarily define at all who the person is. Yes. One of the things that that I came to do uh, with dealing with OCD is, along that line, is I, I treated OCD as a separate entity from myself. And that became uh, a key tool in being able to identify thoughts that I knew were not my thoughts as OCD thoughts. And I just simply would, I would attribute them to this separate entity from me called OCD. And we'll be right back to talk more with um, Shannon Shy about It'll Be Okay, How I Kept Obsessive Compulsive Disorder from Ruining My Life. And we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. 
The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high, wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit cybertipline.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Shannon Shai, who wrote It'll Be Okay, How I Kept Obsessive Compulsive Disorder from Ruining My Life. And before we went to break, uh, Shannon was talking to us about one of the pitfalls that he encountered, and that was the power of suggestion. And the other pitfall that he encountered early in his treatment was the concept of cure. And could you talk to us a little bit about why you think that's a pitfall? Yes. uh, Well, first... Uh, scientists, psychiatrists, you know, they're not quite sure. I should say the medical profession isn't quite sure exactly what causes OCD. Some believe that it's a, a, a chemical imbalance in the brain, a lack of serotonin. Um, others believe it's purely behavioral. Others think there's something to do with, you know, the environment that you lived in, or it could be a combination of any of those. Um, what I, I do believe they agree on is that uh, you can't, be cured of OCD as you think in the normal terms of cure. Uh, what happened to me is the day after I was diagnosed, again, I went to a bookstore and started reading about it, and the very first thing I read was uh, OCD cannot be cured, and that demoralized me because uh, I, didn't, I didn't have any other information to go from, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I'm going to live like this forever. And uh, uh, so you can imagine what what I was going through after I'd read that, given everything I'd been through. Uh, and re- I talked to my psychiatrist about that, and he said, well, you have to put that in context. Um, while it can't be cured, you know, per se, you can learn how to deal with OCD so that you can effectively manage it and it doesn't, uh, you know, adversely affect you. In my case, what I did was, after I learned that that statement was true, that you could effectively learn how to deal with OCD so that it doesn't adversely affect you, um, and, and rarely do I ever get a symptom, uh, but I can tell you that it never adversely affects me because of the, the way I deal with it behaviorally. Uh, I just simply redefined the word cure to mean I can deal with it so that it never adversely affects me, and, and that's cure enough for me. Uh, and I think that extra little bit of information there is helpful to anybody who thinks they might have OCD and you seek treatment. Uh, it, you can deal with it so that, in a sense, you are effectively cured. I think that's a, a nice reframe for that concept because the the one nice thing I thought was in the beginning of your book that you wrote the book to provide hope for people because I think oftentimes people hear a diagnosis like this and they think, oh, my God, this is the end of my life and that this is the way my life is always going to be. 
but um, there there is ways to manage your symptoms, and there are ways to um, lead really good and productive lives as long as you understand what your symptoms are and how to manage them. Right, and and if I could say something to that, Mary, you mentioned earlier that my book wasn't clinical in that sense, and that I and I did that. Um, with a purpose behind it, uh, I have great respect for the the psychiatric and the psycholo- psych- psychology professions because it was through that profession that I was able to learn how to be cured. Um, and I'll always always recommend that people consult um, psychiatrists and psychologists because it is helpful. But with my book, what I wanted to do is is keep it from being a clinical approach. I wanted. I'm just really just a regular guy, and I wanted folks to be able to relate to you know from to someone who's just a regular guy, and I wanted to talk in very basic terms about how um, I was presented with this issue, and how and and how I was approached the pitfalls and and the psychiatrist and the psychologist and ultimately the the, the disorder itself. So I appreciate the fact that you said it wasn't clinical because that. That was my purpose. Well, I meant that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> By no means other than anything other than a compliment, because I really believe that in order for something to be relative, people have to understand it. And when sometimes books are so full of jargon and psychobabble that um, unless you have a medical background, you don't really understand what people are saying. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, the more people can understand something, the more effective it's going to be. So that was totally a compliment. Thank you. Um, I was wondering in terms, we talked a little bit before, while we were on break, but um, you had mentioned in your, your book how your mom had kind of like the normal mom's anxiety, but that you had never met anyone with OCD um, up until the time that you were diagnosed. Um, so what was that like in terms of, I know you said you were afraid that you were going to lose your career, you are going to lose your family, but um, in some way... Being in the Marine Corps, does that reinforce kind of that obsessiveness? I mean, you know, that attention to detail is so important. I think you could probably draw some parallels there. And, and a lot of times when, when folks say, you know, oh, you were in the Marine Corps, so, yeah, that, that environment must have really uh, set the stage, you know, or set the table for you to have OCD. And I think you could draw, look at it and say, yeah, you know, making sure as you're going through um, uh, officer candidate school and everything has to be in order and you're always on time and, and all of that. I, I, I think it's a very natural and logical step to say that environment contributes or is it the perfect place for someone with OCD? I, I don't know that it caused me uh, any particular problems, and I don't know that it um, it caused me on a broader, grander scale to have OCD. In my mind, um, when I started really first noticing uh, the symptoms that I had, uh, and my symptoms generally, I think they dealt with uh, the notion of safety, safety for people, safety of the environment. Uh, And even in the 16 different categories, you can pretty much draw a common thread through them uh, dealing with safety. Uh, That really all, the, the defining event in my life that, I started really noticing my behavior changing was the birth of my first son in 1992. Um, and then and then I had another son in 1996, and then I was diagnosed in 1997. For me, I had never met 
or had any exposure to anybody who had OCD. I had I had some knowledge of a disorder being called OCD, and and it's almost self-defining when you say the the name itself, obsessive compulsive. Uh, but I hadn't really had any reason to look into it or or be aware of it, other than just simply being generally aware as a, a you know a common thinking person. Uh, I thinking back on it, I, I thought well, my mother had you know some worries that she you know that she exhibited, uh, but it wasn't anything way out of the ordinary. Um, I was absolutely afraid when I started noticing my life was being affected in an adverse way. And right around 1996, 1997, that's when I guess my behaviors became more noticeable to others because my wife said something to me. She's like, hey, I think something's going on. And I had a, another major in the Marine Corps who was in my office come to me and say, hey, I think something's going on. Maybe you want to be seen. And I was like, no, it's just stress. Uh, in my mind, I knew something was going on. And and I I had an, I had a feeling it could be what I had this common thought about OCD, but I was even afraid to look up the term because I was afraid I would self-diagnose. Um, and the reason I was afraid is because I just made an automatic conclusion that if I had a mental disorder, the Marine Corps would find me unfit for duty and they would kick me out. And that proved not to be true. And I think that's a great testament to the Marine Corps. <laughs> Yes, yes. And the Navy, the Navy provides medical uh, services to the Marine Corps. Uh, so my psychiatrist and psychologist were Navy officers. Uh, and after I was diagnosed, my psychiatrist said one thing that gave me great comfort uh, at that time and through the rest of my treatment. He told me, he said, look, you know, I'd be laughed out of the psychiatric profession if I found you unfit for duty simply because you had OCD. He said, had you not sought treatment, it would have spiraled itself to the point where you would have become unfit for duty, but fortunately, I, I took the first step of being seen, and through that process, you know, was cured in the sense that I could effectively manage it so that it doesn't adversely affect me. So yes, it was it was a tribute to the Marine Corps and the Navy, and I thank God that I I took the first step of being seen. Well, and you know, I think what's really interesting about um, obsessive compulsive disorders and other brain diseases is that, you know. Um, Obsessive compulsive disorder is like on a continuum. There are times when all human beings can be obsessive. If you've got, um, you know, you got your state boards coming up, and for the next week you're just obsessed with studying, or right. you know, you've got to you're painting your house and it's going to rain in two days. You know, uh, compulsive. Um, I used to work in the operating room when I got out of nursing school, and we used to wash our hands for 20 minutes every day. You know, every time we scrubbed and. Um, and then after a while, it was like, wow, you know, i got to wash my hands. You know, you start washing your hands all the time. But, you know, that's part of, part and parcel of being human. And so when you, when the, whatever happens in the brain that we begin to um, kind of get out of the bell curve with that, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that it's just important for everybody to realize that, that there's a potential for all of us to have sessions or compulsions. But, it's, but when it gets to that other level, is when it's really important to get treatment for it. And people, they say that to me um, quite a bit now when they know that I have OCD. Uh, first, the greatest compliment that I can get from someone now is that I had no idea you had OCD. And I tell them, well, that tells me that, you know, the strategy that I have works. Uh, secondly, you know, they, they'll come to me and say, look, 
I, I think I might have OCD. You know, should I be seen? And they'll tell me, well, you know, I can't stand people walking in my house with their shoes on. I got to go mop it up, you know, right away. Um, or I, I want, I don't want any dirty dishes in the kitchen ever. I want, you know, want to keep them clean. Or I wash my hands, you know, a lot. And, and for me, from the non-medical side of the house, I, I just put it to them this way: it got to the point where I was unhappy with how it was affecting my life. It was adversely affecting my ability to live in the way that I wanted to live. And at that point, you know, I had to make a decision, and I and I, I made the decision to be soon seen. I would I would guess that a lot of people have some tendencies. I, that's not a again that's not a medical diagnosis, but but I've talked to enough people who will share things about their lives, but they're able to cope with them and they don't mind it. In fact, some people like it, uh, which that's fine too. Uh, but you're right. Once it once it once you get into that other level. Uh, that it, it adversely affects your life, that's when you probably need to take some action to be seen. And we'll be right back um, after the next commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest is Shannon Shai, who has written It'll Be Okay, How I Kept Obsessive-Compulsive Disorder from Ruining My Life. Shannon, uh, you were talking to us about some of the um, symptoms that you experienced um, in terms of when you were um, in the kind of the, the throes of your obsessive-compulsive disorders. Well, how did it affect your work? I know you mentioned, like, proofreading documents and... Um, when you had to fly, you were concerned about that. Right. The uh, I guess relative to work, the one of the things, obviously, as a lawyer, I would have to do is write legal memos, uh, which, of course, I would write, you know, lengthy, well-thought memos. Uh, my problem was 
if I had to make a correction inside the memo, let's say I had a 10-page document um, that I was putting out there, if I made a correction on one page, I would have to go back and reread every single word of the document again once it was printed uh, just to make sure nothing else changed. And that, that became so burdensome, I could rarely ever get a document out on time. Um, I traveled a lot with the Marine Corps uh, when when I was on active duty. Uh, I, uh, there was a couple of things that came from that. One was I would get onto an airplane and I would, for some reason, have to check the uh, the wings of the airplane to make sure that there were no defects in the wing. And twice, I uh, once before a flight, once during a flight, I called it to one of the uh, flight attendants' attention that there might be a crack in the wing. And on both occasions, the flight attendant was like, "I think it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, go through a go through a pretty rigorous uh, pre-flight check, so you'll be okay." Uh, the other part was we traveled a lot again from duty station to duty station, so we would be renting houses wherever we went. And I think we lived in I think the number was six or seven in eleven years, six or seven houses in eleven years. And I also visited a lot of hotels. What caused me issues is. The, the day that I had to check out, either from a rental house or from a hotel, I would have to go back and check the whole house or the whole hotel to make sure that there were no lights left on, that, that there was there had been no uh, spills of soda or anything in the room, uh, that there was no other issue, like the gas had not been left on. The day I, I left one house, probably in, I think it was 1995, um, I left a house. This would be the last house I left before I sought treatment for my OCD. It took me uh, an entire one half day, almost oxymoron. Took me one half day to finally get out of the house uh, without going back and checking and checking and checking and checking and rechecking uh, the house. Uh, And for hotels, it was the same thing. Uh, Beyond that, just in my everyday life, uh, I couldn't go really anywhere. Uh, or talk to anybody without some issue popping up. I couldn't go to a beach or a pool, for example, without accounting for every person at the beach or the pool and making sure that if they got in the water, they came out safely. And I would almost do so to the exclusion of my own, or paying attention to my own family. And it, I, at Campus June, I once went to a lifeguard and said, oh, I, just, I don't think it's a problem, but just so that you know, I saw two women go into the uh, ocean about a half hour ago and I never saw them come out and the lifeguard's like, well, what are you trying to tell me? And I said, oh, nothing. You know, I just wanted you to know what, what I what I observed. And the lifeguard's like looking at me thinking, are you from Mars? You know, thinking, you know, are somebody drowning out there? And for me, in all of those safety situations, whether it could be an electrical plug that I thought might be dangerous, as long as I told somebody who I thought might be in a position to fix it or be responsible for it, it relieved my anxiety. It relieved the burden of it being my burden. Uh, so, like I said, my entire life was filled on a daily basis, almost hourly, a minute, minute by minute, with that kind of phenomena. I can't imagine what that must feel like. <laughs> it's not fun. No, I can't imagine that it is. Um, what, what was your wife's response to all this? I know she was supportive, but was she getting more and more concerned um. Yes, she was getting more and more concerned. She she initially came to me and said, "I think something's going on," and 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 she kept nudging me that way, and I just kept telling her, "No, I think it's stress. I, you know, I'm working hard." Uh, blah blah blah. But it, I knew that she was concerned, and and in fact, I 
oftentimes would put the burden on her. If she would be the person who would relieve my anxieties and my burden, I would tell her, you know, if we would leave the house, you know, you check everything and you, honey, make sure that everything is turned off. And that way it was not my responsibility anymore. Or we'd be driving down the road and I would say something like, you know, is that a body in the water out there? Um, and she'd say, no, that's not a body, that's a boat, you know, or something like that. And so once I got, you know, independent confirmation, and she she was a crutch to me for many years, and and through, you know, the treatment, she was very supportive, and she became critical because she learned, and or we both learned, that she could no longer be that crutch. She would put it back into my lap and say, you know, if you want to go back and check, then go ahead and back and check, you know, that's just, but you're going to have to make that decision. And that was key for me to accept responsibility for making those choices, which led to me uh, getting better. Um, it must have been hard for her, too. Oh, uh, you know, I I think she's a saint. <laughs> um, and a lot of people will tell me that, you know, other women may not have been so supportive. Even with the day where I talked about, you know, the, the violent thoughts against my children, at that point, you know, being, you know, so exasperated, she, you know, could have said, okay, well, you do need to leave until you figure this out. But she didn't, and, you know, the fact that she showed that support was, was critical and key, and I respect it and love her for it. Uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, just that part of the book is, a, is a, a great example for people to follow and to understand what it's like to be, you know, a parent or a spouse or a friend of somebody with OCD and, and what might be helpful in dealing with that. Have you ever gone to any type of support groups with other folks that have OCD? No, I didn't. I haven't, and 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 I, I would love you know I would love any opportunity to go speak with people who have OCD because the message is pretty clear and pretty simple, uh, and and hopefully by the fact that that I was able to do it, you know, with everything going on in my life, others will 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 use that as an example uh, and and step out and and find help. Um, this is probably a good segue into talking about your ground rules and your yes. checkpoints. When I saw my, uh, there were two parts of my treatment. One was the psychiatrist who diagnosed me um, put me on medication. It was a, a serotonin medication to help regulate the levels of serotonin in my brain. Uh, and then I also received beha behavioral therapy with a psychologist, both in the Navy, both naval officers. Uh, the the, the the medicine, you know, I, I was on for a number of years, but in my view, you know, for me, the key was developing that behavioral strategy. And the, the psychologist, he did a couple of things. One, you know, he he used as an example when I whenever I talked about you know trying to resist an OCD thought previous in this interview, uh, the more you tried to resist, the more uh, uh, the stronger that the stronger the thought became, and the more intrusive it became. And he used the example of the the, the Chinese uh, finger trick, and that is uh, the little bamboo, uh, circular bamboo uh, thing you put on your fingers, each each index finger. And if you try to if you put it on there and you try to pull your fingers out, uh, whether you try to do it softly or hard, the if you pull them straight out, the 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 contraption constricts around your fingers. If you if you relax, kind of you know, go with the flow, you push your fingers in a little bit, turn them and pull them out a little easily, you're, you're able to get your fingers out. And so it is with OCD. Uh, the more you resist having the thought, 
the stronger and more constricting the thought becomes on you. Uh, the psychologist said there's a couple of key uh, ways to deal behaviorally with OCD. One, he said, you know, if you have a thought, you know, that causes you anxiety like this, identify it as an OCD thought. Don't try to resist the thought. Accept the thought. Just accept it. Let it be there. And then, and then once you get that compulsion to act, for example, go back and check that, you know, log to make sure it's not a dying person, you have to resist the compulsion. So basically, identify it as an OCD thought, uh, accept the thought, resist the compulsion. With that, and over about the course of a year probably, um, I developed a behavioral strategy that worked for me. And I was able, uh, what I call ground rules, they're just simple rules that I follow, and the checkpoints are things that I would say to myself that would implement those ground rules. Uh, by 2003, and I can go back and tell you what the ground rules are, but by 2003, um, I had become well enough, if you will, that I was forgetting to take my medicine, almost like when you get strep throat. The, when you, as soon as you start getting better, you, start, you stop taking the antibiotics, which is a mistake to do, but it, it's, I think people just do it. Well, for me, it was the same with the medicine I was taking. I was well, and I would be forgetting to take my medicine, and I was discovering that I could manage OCD without my medicine. Um, finally, I was, I was out of the Marine Corps at the time, and I was seeing a civilian psychiatrist, and he made the point to me rather angrily because I said I was fine with taking medicine for the rest of my life, and he said, look, you know, we, we all don't have to be, I don't know why we all have to think we're so perfect. And he said it with a few expletives in there to get my attention. Um, uh, and it kind of dawned on me right there that uh, that I didn't have to be perfect. Uh, I just had to manage it the best I could. And, and that became my first ground rule that I applied not only in attacking OCD, but every other part of my life. I don't have to be perfect. Um, my second ground rule was ever-existent um, for me, uh, and that was the one where I said I'm, I have to think of OCD as an entity separate from me. I am not OCD. OCD is not me. It's just something that's out there. And I never gave it human status, but I always thought of OCD as being something separate from me. Uh, my third ground rule was identify the thought as an intrusive, irrational thought, and I wanted to attribute it to its rightful owner, OCD. said, this isn't my thought. This is OCD's thought, uh, which would lead to the compulsion. And once that compulsion was there, I would tell myself, I'm sorry, the other part of having the thought is once I identified it, I just accepted the thought. I, would, I wouldn't try to resist it. I would just accept it and put it in my head. I would, I would say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether this is the most despicable thought that anyone could ever think. I'm just going to let it be in my head. And ordinarily, I guess in time, that became the key, the key step because once I got to that point and I had that OCD thought, I would let it be there which leads to my final ground rule. The compulsion, at all costs, you got to resist the compulsion. Don't go back and check. It's painful, but you got to be disciplined about it. You don't go back and check. you got to resist the compulsion. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. 
grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom (laughs) and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh, Shoot, get away. Play with them, dear. Hornets hate high-pitched noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see. Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow. For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, This is our last segment for today's show. And Shannon, could you continue talking to us about your ground rules because we kind of left off during the break. Sure. Uh, the, the the last, well, I'll talk about the last two ground rules again. One, when, The first one is once you have that obsessive thought, it was key for me to simply just accept 
the thought. Don't try to resist it. Let it be. Let it be in my my mind, in my brain. And you know, I would just tell myself, it's okay to have the thought. It, it, it it's absolutely okay to have this thought. You know, my life isn't going to change one way or the other by having this thought. Thoughts never hurt anybody. The key there is, you know, o- OCD is is ready for a fight. Basically, again, OCD, the separate entity. OCD wants you to resist the thought, so OCD can push back. And for me, uh, you know, once once you say, I'm not I'm not fighting this. I'm going to go ahead and have a thought. It frustrates OCD to the point where. Uh, in the end, or as you progress, the the thoughts become uh, less frequent, less intense, uh, to the point where you you know you may not have them at all. And for me, I rarely ever have any type of OCD thought. And and when I do get them, I simply again I identify it as an OCD thought, and that's the end of the story. Uh, the the fifth you know once you get past once you get past you know. The, the accept the thought while you're going through your therapy is once when you get the compulsion to act again the 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 compulsion to act would be designed uh, to go back and relieve whatever anxieties you're having like go back and check make sure the log is not a dead person that relieves all those symptoms uh, only for the instant because as soon as you give into that compulsion um, the the thoughts and the compulsions come back you know with uh, with, with with great resolve and and with a lot more strength, um, resisting the compulsion to go back and check or whatever the compulsion is, wash your hands, um, etc. Whatever that compulsion is, you have to resist it. And and for me, I would I would tell myself uh, this is where the title of the book came. I would say it'll be okay. It'll be okay if you resist going back. It'll be okay not to do what OCD is telling you what to do. Um, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. I just kept repeating to myself. Um, if I found it to be, com- uh, you know, completely difficult to try to resist, uh, my, my, my last ground rule, resisting the compulsion, actually has two checkpoints. If the first checkpoint was, was not getting the job done, I'd go to the second checkpoint, and I would just simply play it out in my mind and say, if anyone ever questions me about why I didn't do what OCD wanted me to do and whatever the horrible thing I was envisioning happens, I'll simply tell them that I have OCD. I've been told that I won't get better if uh, if I don't resist the compulsion. And so I'll tell them they can do whatever they want to me, but I, I want to get better. I want to get better. And the good news there is uh, the horrible thing never happened um, uh, because it was a, you know an intrusive, irrational thought that I was having in the first place, and the horrible thing never happened. Uh, in the end, I was able to sort of restructure the way that I thought about things, and OCD, um, OCD is not a part of my life. Uh, it doesn't ever, and I can say that with 100% certainty, uh, for the longest time now, it has never adversely affected me, and I haven't seen a doctor since 2003, and I haven't taken any medication since 2003. And I've, I've pretty much learned how to deal with this um, in about... From about 1998, early 1999, and and that's when I knew. Now, after uh, being di- diagnosed 12 years ago, that I can say with the most confidence um, that that I figured it out uh, with the help of doctors, and I, I I give them all the credit and the respect in the world. But I'm able, you know, just Shannon Shy, I'm able to to tell you that that OCD can be effectively managed. I'm living proof that it can be effectively managed. 
And I think as you're implying is that this didn't happen overnight. This took a, a time to, to learn how to resist the, the compulsion. Right. It took time and practice, I'm thinking. It did. It, you know, I mean, therapy was a 24-7 event. Um, but it wasn't that long, actually, that I was. I kind of figured it out. It was probably within a year, I would say, a year and a half, that I, I had the strategy to the point where I was saying, hey, you know, I think I got this down. Uh, and I was, you know, again, I was on medication at the time, and, and I didn't want to take myself off medication because um, that was part of the therapy that I'd received. And, and I'm not making a statement about whether medication is needed or not needed. I just know that it was part of my treatment. But I got to the point where finally in 2003, or excuse me, from, from about the year 2000 to 2003, I'm thinking, you know, I'm only seeing doctors to get the medication. It wasn't because I, I had the strategy figured out. By 2003, uh, it became clear to me uh, through it being self-evident and also with my discussions with my civilian psychiatrist that I did that Shannon Shy at least didn't need that medication, and I weaned myself, you know, with the help of the doctor off of it, uh, and I haven't had any medication or really the need to see a doctor since 2003. For people who would like to um, get the book, where can they get it, Shannon? Right now, it's available uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, barnesandnoble.com and authorhouse, A-U-T-H-O-R-house.com. And is there any way to get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? Sure. Um, I'll give you my email address. It's uh, Shannon Shy, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-S-H-Y, at gmail.com. Okay. Um, and then toward the end of your book, you give some helpful hints. And um, I wondered if you wanted to share a couple of the helpful hints. Oh, sure. Um, it, outside of the ground rules and checkpoints, a lot of it, I think a lot of this is how you approach life. And some people have told me that they thought, you know, the, the book, in addition to being about OCD, it's also about overcoming adversity and obstacles in your life. Uh, if, if you think you have OCD, seek professional help. And if, in fact, if, if you take no other message away from this, uh, know that there is hope. And if you think you have OCD, seek professional help. Try to have a positive attitude um, and always have hope. Uh, I think hope outside of even any medical uh, suffering that anyone's going through, hope can be a very, very powerful influence in your life. Rely on your friends and your family and your faith. Um, for me, I thank God that I was healed, and I, I prayed a lot. I prayed a lot when I was going through this. Um, I thought I was at my at my wit's end, and I think God was a, a powerful factor in me having the courage, at least, to, to, to continue on trying to get help. Try to enjoy life. Um, think about the things that once made you happy, the things that you did. You know, go back to doing those. Uh, for me, I'd, I love to walk in the woods. I would take my boys and we'd go walk in the woods. And, you know, I continually reminded myself that I was one of God's children um, and I should love who I am. You know, I, I have value. I'm a special part of the universe. You know, remind, if you're going through something, you know, remind yourself that you're loved not only by God, but by many, many, many people, especially your family. It's extremely important. If you're trying to help somebody who has it, if you're a parent or a friend of someone, educate yourself about OCD. You know, consult medical sources and even a psychiatrist or a psychologist to get as much information that you can. Don't be judgmental or ridicule, you know. Uh, ask the right questions and encourage encourage your loved one that that it, there is a way out and they can be helped. 
And I want to thank you, Shannon, for um, sharing this hour with us. And to all of our listeners, I really recommend um, It'll Be Okay, How I Kept Obsessive Compulsive Disorder from Ruining My Life. It's a great book for people who have OCD or for family and friends of folks who have OCD. Have a great week, everyone. And thank you again, Shannon. Thank you, Mary. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. You're welcome. Have a good week. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.